Our reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Linda. Well, morning. Happy New Year to those I haven't yet seen. Now, last year we had all my favourite topics to preach on, like revival. This year, you've got my specialist topic, the Bible and how it was put together. So are we all ready for a four-hour lecture? It's going to be fun. I've put on the slide, if we could have our first slide up, please, that it's going to be 20 minutes. That's just to lull you into a false sense of security and hope that it will be done in 20 minutes. Let's start with a Bible joke. Who was the best financier in the Bible? Noah, he floated his stock whilst everyone else went into liquidation. One for the accountants there. Sorry, I do keep picking on the accountants. I'm going to pick on farmers next week. I'm sorry. But before we begin, I wanted to sort of sound a note of caution as we approach this series for the next seven weeks on the Bible. Because our views on the Bible can be one of those things that can be a little bit controversial. And what we have to say about ourselves as Bible readers can split a church in a way that I don't think prayer ever does. I've never heard anyone say, I've got a conservative prayer life. She's got a liberal prayer life. Have you ever heard that? I haven't. But about the Bible, we tend to take these positions quite easily and we do judge quite easily. And we say... I have this belief about scripture, therefore I am right, and these others are wrong. And there are some truths, don't get me wrong, that we have as our orthodox creeds, and we don't depart from them. But there are many other areas on which we can disagree and still have fellowship. You can love your brother and sister next to you who believes that Genesis 1 to 11 is literal, and one who doesn't believe that. And we can still be in unity together. So my hope is that this gets us thinking at the start about how to be a church in complete unity, whatever different views we have about different bits of the Bible. We will not be a church that is divided. We will not be a church that is divided. We can have all of these things and hold them together 
and learn together and keep asking questions and not say, that sister is conservative, that brother is liberal, all right? Because what holds us together is our walk and love towards the wonderful person of Jesus. And you're not going to be judged for those that you've managed to turn slightly different opinions and the number of people that you've managed to change your mind onto your particular dogma. You're just going to be mostly focusing on how much you love Jesus. So can we have that as our starting point? And this is how I want us to be as a church. My friend's church in Bracknell used to use this analogy, and I love it. Do you want your church to be like a coconut or like a peach? This will make sense in a second. The co- I know you're all looking like mm, fruit salads. This will make sense. So a coconut has a very hard shell. And inside, it's all lovely and soft and good for you and really, really quite tasty. But you've got to get through a hard outward shell for anyone to get in and receive some of that nice stuff in the middle. Versus a peach, which has a lovely, fleshy exterior, very tasty straight away, but a very hard kernel holding it together. And I would suggest, or this analogy would suggest, that as churches, we want to be like that peach, not like the coconuts. We don't want to put up loads of external barriers to being a member of this church, and only then do you get to enjoy the lovely bit in the middle. We want to be like the peach. We know what we believe. We know who we are. We know what life we stand for and what our core values are. And we don't compromise on Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. But on the outside, this is how you get to know us. We're welcoming and we're friendly and we're open and everyone can belong even before they believe. So we're not making a fruit salad this morning. We just want to be like a peach. Right, that's all the preamble ramble. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious riches in your word. And Lord, I thank you that it is a treasure trove that we can discover more of every single day, just like you, Jesus. So would you help us for more in love with your word this morning, but also to start asking questions about how we become better readers. Amen. So you may be thinking, why are we learning how to read the Bible? Because I can read. We can all read. All right then, read this. Trifle sunrise, deflated jogs, pot plant wave, ink marrying lettuce, sunflower, ignores dodgem, baffled by whirlpool mixing eagle before pesky disunited licorice banner creating frame moustache. What does that mean? You can read, but what does it mean? Well... And there's some very prophetic people here who can work out what my gibberish means. It's gibberish. You can read it, but in trying to interpret it, it doesn't make any sense. So we need to interpret. And when we can't make sense of it, then we're not truly reading. How about some of these apparently real headlines? I'm not sure I believe it, but how about some of these headlines? Kids make nutritious snacks. Stolen painting found by tree. Prostitutes appeal to Pope. Miners refuse to work after death. And milk drinkers are turning to powder. What's the problem with some of these? 
Well, the problem is that they can be interpreted in more than one way. And your brain has had to sit there and make some interpretive decisions about what it means. So, I don't know, let's take the second one from bottom. We sit there and we think, right, well, unless you're Jesus, you can't work after death. So that can't be what it means. Ah, it must mean that some miner died... And therefore, the remaining miners refuse to go to work until there's better health and safety legislation. But that is what we are all doing when we read. We're not just looking at words on the page. We make an interpretive decision to help us understand it. And we need a context, like the fact we know that unless it's, I don't know, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and there are Ents, which are the walking trees, trees cannot find a painting. So we need to have some context to help us understand it. And with the Bible, if we read it, but don't look at its context, and don't seek to interpret it, then I'm afraid that we can end up with some of these situations from history. So the Crusades were allowed and permitted by people who said that it was completely biblical to go and invade and steal and kill and capture and destroy. Slavery there on the top right, never actually explicitly condemned in the Bible, though of course when you read the whole narrative and put it together, it was Christians like Wilberforce who brought about its end in the British Empire, although sadly it still exists today in many forms. But it was used to justify slavery. And it was also used in World War II to justify a belief that Christians were superior to Jews and allowed the Third Reich to continue in that belief, because Christians, or not enough of them, didn't stand up to this thought too. So the Bible could have the potential, when read out of context, to do immense damage. Indeed, that's why I think there was quite a problem at the time of the Reformation, when they didn't want to put, or some people didn't want to put, the Bible into the hands of those who would otherwise not really have the knowledge and the understanding to read it and work it out for themselves. It was previously kept in Latin, the language that only the priests understood. But don't ask me or Sylvia to read you that much Latin. But it still absolutely was the right thing for the reformers to put this amazing gift of God's word into the regional language, sorry, into translated languages of people all across Europe and then later beyond so that they could read it and understand it and interpret it for themselves. But we need help to do that. So, I like this little cartoon, one for smartphone users. If you're not a smartphone user, the little three dots are what you get when you're waiting for someone to continue to send you a message. Because we're rather like praying. When we read the Bible, it is a conversation. God speaks to us. We speak to him. But it's also a conversation with ancient authors and ancient churches. And we need to take on board what they have to say as well. And with this sole exception of this part, when Moses was awaiting the words of God and God was literally writing those tablets of stone, we do not believe, unlike some religions or branches of Christianity like Mormonism, that the words of the Bible were literally written by the finger of God or even dictated. We don't believe that. We believe that individual authors, lots of different ones, 
were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write their own words. And they'll have many different thoughts and many different perspectives and many different things over time. But that does not, don't get me wrong, make it any less the word of God. It is a beautiful gift to us because we hear it from so many different perspectives and we still hear God's story being knitted together from books that began probably around the 8th century BC right to the end of the 1st century AD. So many different authors giving us a different perspective, but making together this beautiful story. And the one united story, I think, of all of it is God's intervention in the world, most beautifully represented in the person of Jesus himself. But that's what the united story of the Bible is about, what it is like to know him and meet him and have him change our lives and so that we can then go on to change the lives of others. So how many books in the Bible? You're all good Protestants, so what are you going to say to me? 66. Here's a fun version, just looks like the periodic table. Don't know why, just liked it. But not for every Christian. There's also the Apocrypha, which the Catholic Church would use, and which, interestingly, in some versions of the Anglican Bible, though whilst not canonical, would have it in it, as the Anglican Church describes it as useful for manners, which is such a lovely Anglican way of putting it. But they say that these books, which are written between the Old Testament and the New Testament and cover some periods, can also be worth reading. But the Protestant Church on the whole, has come down with this idea of 66 separate books. So that is going to be a lot of different perspectives. There's 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New. And they are a little bit of everything. And as a vegetarian, I really shouldn't use this analogy, but it is one of my favourites. The analogy of the sausage machine. Let's pretend it's a vegetarian sausage, it'll make me happier. But very often what happens when we come to think about all the different books of the Bible is they can lose their individuality a bit and all go through the sausage machine and come out as church history. So you get some letters, you get some dreams and visions, you get prophecy, you get historical writings, you get foundation stories all sorts of other bits. And they're all there in their wonderful, distinctive separateness, but with their overarching story. But we can read the Bible, shove it all through the sausage machine, and it turns out as church history. And therefore, we have people who have huge arguments about whether Genesis is literally true, or whether it could be telling us something that's truthful, but not necessarily factual, as we understand scientific fact today. But these are all things that we can think about. And that's okay. I want to give you permission this morning to think about that. Or we kind of get the whole Bible and we shove it into just one label, like we call it God's love letter to us. And to be fair, I've probably preached on that myself, so I'm equally to blame. But actually, it's a very strange love letter if in places it's got instructions about how to stone someone. That would be an extremely unusual love letter to write. Or we call it a manual, 
Well, it's a useful manual for about 4,000 BC to 2,000 AD desert life, if you want it. And there are certainly things that are a guide to life. But I would say it is more than that. And if we try and shove it all into one thing, it loses its beautiful distinctiveness. And we're much better off recognizing the wondrous things that we have in each section. So, for example, we've got a book called Lamentations, and we've got a Bible verse that says, Rejoice always. So how can those two things be true if we're trying to shove it all into a sausage of something? Or should we just say that separately? This is teaching us an amazing truth about the need for lament. And this bit is teaching us an amazing truth about the gift of God, saying that we can rejoice always. And the way I've been thinking about it, probably I've just did too much work in chimes before the holiday, is that it's a bit like a cake. You've got ingredients in there that taste pretty nice on their own. I'd be happy to eat eggs and butter and sugar, far too much of it, on their own. And those are the nice bits. But I don't really like eating flour on its own. And I certainly don't like eating baking powder on its own. It's rather sharp and it's rather bitter and yuck. Why would you? But together, those ingredients do combine to be a beautiful whole. And I know I'm mixing my images here, but you need all of them to create something beautiful. And I believe that that's what we have in the Bible. It's not heresy to say that there are different bits that say different things at different times. And if you believe that, I suggest you actually read the Bible. And it's what Jesus did as well. He said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I say to you, go and do this. You know, turn the other cheek or whatever. So understanding that there is different bits of it that can speak to our lives at different times, I think more beautiful to find the treasure within. And as it was saying in this bit, it's not about the book itself. It is about who you meet in that book. And this passage, the reason why I chose it, is because it goes in to Jesus. Because in these words, we find the word. And it reminds us that if we're looking at the Bible as an end in itself, and just saying this is something that we can read, and this is something that Christians do, and we ought to read our Bible, and that's it, I've ticked that off on my to-do list for today, then we're not in the right place with it, because these words should be leading us to the word. So what do we do about it all? How do we read it all? Because you may be thinking, crikey, well, how am I ever going to get it right then? If we've got all of this to learn and all of the context and all of the background and she hasn't even talked yet about her specialist subject of translation, how do we even get those words right when it's across so many generations? There are some words we don't even know 5,000 years later how they should be translated. Then help! What are we going to do? Well, here are my three suggestions for good Bible reading. First of all, ask for the Holy Spirit's help to guide you and make the text come alive. I'm not a fan of reducing the Holy Spirit's work to simply just, please help me understand this, amen, because I feel that the Holy Spirit's work, he or she is much more alive 
and wild and crazy than that. And I love how he or she reveals Jesus to us. But we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand what is going on in here. You need help. I need help. We all need help to be guided. But it's also then about making it come alive. And I'm sure if I asked every single one of you who's read the Bible, have you had one of those moments when there's something you've read 45,000 times suddenly stands out to you in a new way? You'll all say yes. You know, whether it's the most simple thing or quite a complicated thing, or in one case, I even heard in a list of kings, God spoke to someone. Because, as our passage today reminds us, it is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. And it does penetrate even to dividing our soul and our spirit, reminding us of those great truths. We need help to interpret it. We need help to understand what Jesus is saying through his spirit, through this word, to working together to come alive in us today. We need to read with humility and with honesty and with openness. And we're not very good at this one, me included. If Peter had to say in his own letter that Paul's words were pretty hard to understand, and this is Peter on whom Jesus said, I will build my church, then how much more do we need help to learn to read? Because the thing is, we're not blank slates. We all like to think that we are. We all like to think that we're the one that comes to the Bible with no prejudices and no thoughts of our own and no life situations that could ever affect it. And we're the ones that believe in its pure word and it's those others that do not. But that's not true. We all come with our own thoughts. We all come with our own baggage. And we all come with the things that are going to reflect and shape scripture in our own image when they shouldn't. But we need to know that. And it happens all the time because we all take things from our own perspective. Here's an example from a newspaper. I hope this won't be considered as me attempting to affect the election because I can't because that's already happened. But here's a contrast. Two headlines from the Daily Express, two months apart. Basically exactly the same story, that the minimum wage is going to be raised. So on one side, because this is a paper that supports the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson's plan to raise wages across the country receives huge boost from experts and a lovely smiling picture of Sajid Javid. On the right-hand side, Labour's minimum wage plan could cost you your job and would send unemployment soaring and a very stressy picture of Corbyn and a job centre. Depending on your personal political take and this paper's personal political take, it's reported the same story in two different ways. This is not a political point, this is just a point about how we read. So always question, what attitudes do you bring? So if you saw this headline, depending on your own particular preferences, you may think minimum wage raise is a good thing, minimum wage raise is a bad thing. But you have brought an unconscious bias to one of those headlines and you will automatically already be thinking one of these feels more false to me and one of these feels more real. Because you bring something. So even if you don't know that you bring it, you do. And so back to this list. We need to read this knowing that 
we need to be changed. And if we come to this book expecting that our own preconceptions are just going to be backed up 100% of the time, then we're doing it wrong. And the third book, use the whole story of the Bible and your Jesus vision. So individual bits that we pick out may then lead to bad interpretation like the Crusades and slavery and continuing in the Third Reich, persecution of Jews. But if they had used the whole story of the Bible, we would know the heart of God is always with the poor and he leaves the rich to go and find the oppressed. And even in the violence of Jesus' death on the cross, he brought us peace. He was seeking after peace. And so there are a couple of ways that various scholars have put together the whole story of the Bible. And I end with this. Don't worry, it's not too much longer. So there's a picture at the top suggesting that this is the order we could go with. Creation, our separation from God, the promise that he gave. God with us in person at Christmas as we've just celebrated and can continue to celebrate every day of our lives because of Jesus. Death to life, the church new creation. Or a slightly different way, the way the scholar N.T. Wright puts it together, creation, fall, the history and narrative of God with his people, Israel, and then Jesus, and then the church, the bit in which we currently live, and then the new creation. So when you read your Bible, how does what you are reading fit with this whole story? How does it fit with what you know Jesus to be? Because Jesus is real. Jesus is a person. Jesus has emotions. I feel him close to me and I feel what moves his heart. I feel what makes him happy. I feel what makes him sad. I don't always get it right. I wish I were closer. I'm always going to try. But if you know him as a person, then the way that you then meet him in his word changes things. Because imagine I got a text that said, I love you from Francis. That would be fine. That would be lovely because I know the author and I know his relationship with me. But if I got a random text from a randomer and an unknown number out of the blue that said, I love you, that would be a bit scary and a bit stalkerish because I don't know the author. But when you know the author, their words mean more. Their words stand out to you and it needs to change you. I love this quote. We should try to live in such a way that if the Gospels were lost, they could be rewritten by looking at us. Because as I said earlier on, it's a two-way process. He talks back to us through his word. And if this word isn't changing us, as I said before, we're doing it wrong. We need to make our lives look like this, living on the page. And so we don't normally end with questions. Don't worry, introverts, that's not interactive. It's just questions to think about. But as we go into this series, I really want us to keep thinking and not be afraid to ask questions. So here are some. And home group leaders, if you're covering it this week, we don't actually have this in the series as we've added in this introduction. So these are questions you might want to think through. What are the implications of the Bible being a library of books? How would you summarize the big story of scripture? And when has a text you've read many times suddenly stood out to you? And there's one more slide. 
What is new to you or has particularly struck you so far? Let's be vulnerable here. Is there anything I've said that you disagree with or are not sure about? Come and find me. Let's have that conversation. And will anything that's been said so far change how you read the Bible? And those are questions that we can keep asking ourselves over the next seven weeks. Because if we're to go on that journey together and to go on that journey with the Lord and understand more about this lovely, amazing book, which is like a treasure box in which we find those treasures, the treasures of God's kingdom and the greatest treasure, Jesus himself, then we need to be prepared to have our preconceptions challenged and we need to be prepared to keep thinking. And I promise that if you do that, we're going to fall more in love with him and more in love with understanding each other, even with all our differences. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a good start to the series? Good, at least a third of you agree. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to pray at the outset of this series that we meet you afresh and anew in your word. As we read your stories, as we read revelations of you, as we read the law, the prophets, and Jesus, as we read about your life and the gospels, we read about the letters of the early church, whatever it is, Jesus, would we find you at the center, whether it be the Old Testament or the New Lord, I pray for these dear sisters and brothers of mine that nothing would be a barrier to our unity and as we go forward, we can be pleased to have discussions about this topic, but Jesus, with you at the centre. And Lord, would you draw each of us to your word? May we find ourselves reading it at opportune times and inopportune times. Would you help us to fall more in love with you? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.